Here we're excited about what God's doing in our church. This is February, of course, but it is stewardship slash missions month. So uh, we've been spending a little time on dealing with the topic of stewardship and missions, and uh, we're going to continue that this morning out of Second Corinthians. So if you'll turn in your Bibles there with me, and I'm going to ask our ushers to pass out some cards. You may have already received one of these, but I'll ask you if you don't mind, go ahead and take another one. They're a little faith promise prayer cards. These are just for prayer purposes. Uh, don't fill them out. We just want you to pray about uh, your involvement in Faith Promise Missions. And uh, that card will come up at the end of the sermon. So just set it aside once you get it and um, uh, that'll be just fine. All right. Want to take care of uh, something here. We want to recognize uh, Carl and uh, Sandy Rambus. Today is their 57th wedding anniversary. How about that? Amen. Sandy, just in case people don't know who you are, slip your hand up for us, will you? Right back there, she and Carl. And uh, 57 years. Wow. That's amazing. That's cool. Very good. Very good. Hey, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and we're going to ask God to do what only he can do. He's our, he's our teacher, he's our guide, he's our built-in professor. The Holy Spirit can show us things from the scripture we've never seen. So uh, let's ask him to shed some light on that. And then on a, a very somber note, of course, let's pray for the families down in South Florida who uh, have experienced the horror of a school shooting uh, this past week. And um, they need our prayers. Would you agree? So let's lift them up. Father, we come to you today and we just thank you for the privilege you've given us to gather in your house. And Lord, as we focus in on 2 Corinthians 8, we ask for the work of the Holy Spirit today, Lord, realizing that we are dependent on you, God. Lord, without you, all we do is simply read a story. We, we can't really understand it and comprehend what you'd have us to know about it. So we ask for your help, Lord. We pray for the work of the Holy Spirit as he illuminates the scripture to us, Lord. Teach us, we pray. And God, our, our hearts uh, are just heavy today for the families, Lord, who have lost loved ones in this uh, just horrific case of the school shooting in South Florida. And God, we pray for them that you would provide them with comfort, Lord, encouragement of heart somehow through all of this and God we pray for our families throughout America we pray God that we would uh, see a return to the values that you have taught us and told us about Lord to strong families in in America God that you would help us to understand that without you Lord we are headed in the wrong direction and I just pray, God, for your blessings, Lord, on them. Somehow, Lord, bless through all of this. And we ask again for your guidance, your direction, Lord, your protection on our children in the schools around Duval County, Lord. And we just thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We've called this sermon uh, today, Cultivating a, a Generous Spirit or a Spirit of Generosity. Okay, what we're about to read is uh, a tremendous passage. It is actually a favorite among those of us who believe strongly in what we call faith promise missions. That's a phrase that may be new to some of you. If you've been here at East Point very long, you probably are familiar with the phrase. But it's a term that has come to refer to uh, making a promise by faith 
to help do missions around the world. God told us that we were supposed to do missions. Amen. And so we just need to follow that commission and that command to go into all the world. Uh, I'm reminded when we think about stewardship and uh, difficulties of the pastor who their church was struggling and the church council got together and they came to the pastor and they said, Pastor, we're, uh, we've got bad news. We're not able to give you a raise this year. And the pastor was kind of shocked and he said, what? He said, uh, can you reconsider? I mean, after all, I am but a poor pastor. And, uh, and they said, uh, we know. We listen to you every week. <laughs> so uh, for whatever that's worth. Anyway, I want to give you a little test today just to see, uh, see where you guys are on some things. So I'm going to show you a couple of pieces of pie. And you tell me if you were offered A or B, which would you prefer? Really? You'd prefer A? Who said that? You're in church. All right. Got that little bitty piece of pie or that big piece of pie. Now I know B needs more ready whip. Can we get an amen? You should smother that in that. Most people would say B. Now if you're going to wash down that pie, would you rather have, next slide please, A, a full glass of milk or B, just that little inch of milk in there. Which would you rather have? A. Hey, yeah, yeah. Some of you are just being cantankerous, aren't you? you uh... Most of us would say we want the big piece of pie and we want the full glass of milk. That's what most would say. And it proves this point. It proves that when it comes to receiving, we want people to be generous. You can amen that. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? If you're on the receiving end, we want people to be generous. But if we're on the giving end, are we equally as desirous to be generous? That's kind of the question we have before us today. We're going to look at a great passage of scripture here. Paul the Apostle is writing to the church at Corinth. Keep in mind Corinth is toward the south and that whole area. Uh, Macedonia is to the north and Greece down at the bottom. They're connected. They're, uh, they're uh, the barbaric neighbors, one particular theologian said, uh, to the Greeks. And so Paul makes a statement here that is quite interesting to begin this chapter and look at it, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now Macedonia is a region and Paul had visited that area on his second missionary journey. Those of you that are familiar with the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. So the churches, plural, of this area, Paul said they have received the grace of God. It has been poured out on them. Now the churches he's speaking of are probably Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. These were all the areas that Paul had gone to and begun churches in. There may have even been some others that started as a result of that. But here's what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, I want to tell you about these churches and what God is doing through them, what he did in them, and, and, and I want to use this as an example to you guys. Matter of fact, this is a great story. The more it unfolds, uh, the more we begin to see things that we can apply to our own lives. Notice verse 2. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep Poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Now that's just one confusing verse of scripture. Would you agree? 
I mean, man, if that's your first time reading that or first time in a while, you're wondering, what in the world is he saying? They're in a great trial of affliction. Macedonia, by the way, was a pretty prosperous area. Uh, they were uh, they were well-to-do region and and yet the Bible says they were in the midst of a serious trial more than likely they were the same type of trials that Paul had faced when he was there and, and they tried to kill him that is they were facing the difficulties in their life because they were living a Christian life and by the way Living as a Christian is going to come with some persecution and some problems even in today's world. We might not have to deal with it exactly the way they dealt with it in the early church, but we have to deal with it and we might as well face that. If you're going to stand up for the Lord, there are going to be people who think that you're odd and you just need to keep quiet about your faith. So we're going to run into that. But in this case, it was a serious trial. The word is great trial of affliction. But then it uses the phrase abundance of joy. Now reconcile that one for me. Even though they're going through this horrible trial, they have an overflowing joy. And then the term is used, their deep poverty. Deep poverty. One particular writer and, and student of the word uh, mentioned that this phrase means down to the depth poverty or as Philip Hughes translates it, rock bottom poverty. Now when you're in that kind of a state and somebody asks you to give, you might even be a little offended at that. Especially if anybody knows you're in that state, right? Right? You don't have to amen it. I know you're amen it on the inside. <laughs> That'll work. And yet the Bible says it abounded to their riches of their liberality. They gave liberally. This is mind-boggling. How did they do this? Well, let's, let's keep reading. It's, it's interesting. Because verse 3 says, For I bear witness... Paul said, I've seen it myself. I'm aware of it. This is an experience that I have had. And the Bible says, for I bear witness that according to their ability. Okay, so somebody says, okay, pastor, we're talking about the widow's might right here then, right? According to your ability. The widow who came into the temple that Jesus sat by the treasury and watched how they gave. And, and, and not how much they gave, but how they gave. And she gave all that she had. Uh, just two little mites. Remember the story? Most of you do. And, and her sacrifice was so much greater than the others who gave much, but they had much to give from. So maybe that's what is meant. According to their ability. But then it says this. And beyond their ability. Now right now in a church service like this. Or maybe listening online. Everybody with a logistical mind. The mind has just gone blank. It kind of phases out and fuses out. Because you cannot give what you do not have. Everyone will tell you that. And yet they did. And the question becomes, how? How do people do this? How did they do this? How did they give beyond their ability to give? That makes no logistical sense. Welcome to what we call faith giving. Reconcile for me these two words, faith and logic. You cannot. The two never meet. 
Logic is a matter of reasoning it through and saying, this is what I can do. This is why you will hear throughout this month, and why you've already heard me use this phrase over and over already in the month of February, do not ask God when it comes to missions what he wants you to do. That's according to your ability. Ask him this question, what does he want to do through you? That is according to beyond your ability. Is it possible that God wants to give through you what he will not give to you? Is that possible? The logistical mind is saying this makes no sense. That brings us into faith. So what exactly is going on here? These people have great joy. It's interesting, one writer uh, gave us uh, this, this commentary. The Macedonian churches are a testimony that it is possible not merely to experience joy, but to have it overflow in the midst of trials. How did they have this? Joy is different than happiness. Happiness is based on our circumstances uh, more often than not. But joy is not based on external circumstances at all. And God's people can have joy even in the midst of trials and difficulties in our lives. In James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 it reads this way. My brethren count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It's a remarkable thing that happens in our hearts when we step out in faith and we ask God to do through us what he will not necessarily do to us or for us. Then we enter this realm of faith. And in this realm of faith, we start seeing God do stuff that we've never seen God do before in our lives. And you enter this area that, that is difficult to even explain to people. But you know this. There seems to be no lack. The no lack principle is throughout the word of God that is difficult for us to fully comprehend. It's talked about later in this chapter in relation to the manna. Do you remember the manna that God sent down? You remember what God said? As a matter of fact, it's quoted in verse 15 of this text. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack. God sent the manna down from heaven and he said, now don't store it up. Uh, this is only going to be enough for you to have for that particular day. And then again, on the last day or or the, the sixth day, he's not going to send it on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was considered holy. So he would create uh, uh, the uh, possibility of it being preserved for the seventh day. But if you tried to store it up any other time of the week, what happened? It got worms in it. That's a God thing. Are you following me? Why did it, why was it preserved on the sixth day but not preserved on any other day? Why couldn't we just heap it up? People tried to do it and man their tent stunk. Am I right? So you see sometimes God will give to you enough. You'll not have a lack. But he's not going to let you just store it up. So these are some of the principles that we begin to learn. Uh, there are three things in this text I want to give you. And, and uh, I know that's kind of a lengthy introduction for you. Let me give you the first one. If you want to go ahead and fill in the blank and write it down. We find three findings here. The first one is information. We find information. Now the information is about a church. I'm sorry. A group of churches. It's plural. Churches in Macedonia. 
And they are apparently a very faith-filled church. And the Bible says they gave beyond their ability. They were freely willing. Imploring us, verse 4, let me pick up there. Imploring us that, uh, with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Now it appears from this text that Paul tried to deny the gift. Paul tried to say, now wait a minute, you, uh, uh, you guys don't have everything you need right here. And so we're, uh, we can't do this. This is not, and the Bible says that they, uh, they implored them uh, with urgency. With much urgency. No, no, no. You take this. You take this. Maybe somebody has done something for you and you felt bad uh, because they were so generous in what they did. And you said, no, no, I can't do that. Don't do it. And they might use this phrase with you. Are you trying to rob me of a blessing? You see, somewhere they caught on to the principle that they can be blessed by the Lord in ways that they would not be blessed otherwise if they did not exercise a spirit of generosity. Verse 5, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Now that's a very important portion of what we've just read in the first five verses. Now we've talked about a lot of things, but one of the little phrases we mentioned just briefly was they gave freely, they were willing in their giving. This was not a grudgingly thing. This was not a, a matter of, of uh, putting, putting something in the offering basket and singing until we meet again kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? This was, this, was, uh, uh, this was a matter of giving freely. I'm reminded of the story in Exodus chapter 36. If you want to flip over there for just a minute, I'm going to read a little passage to you out of Exodus 36. What happens in Exodus 36 is God instructed Moses to collect the offering. The people were to bring stuff. Now, now it's a great story because uh, uh, remember what the, who the children of Israel were before they entered into the wilderness? They were slaves to the Egyptians. Remember that? They didn't have a whole lot. They were slaves. But God did something when he, when he led them out of Egypt. He, he said to them, I'm going to make the Egyptians give stuff to you and you're going to leave having spoiled the Egyptians. So the Egyptians start giving them stuff to get rid of them. They give them silver. They give them gold. They give them garments. They give them all kinds of stuff. Well, now God is calling for a building program. He's going to build the tabernacle in the wilderness. And he says to the people, here's what you do, Moses. You go and tell them that these are the things they need to bring. You need this much of this and that much of this and this much of this. And then you have the people bring it in. And so it's an offering that is taken in for the work of God. And we find this in verse number 3 of Exodus 36. And they received from Moses all the offering. And the children of Israel, which the children of Israel had, had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So let me pause a moment. These are the workers. These are the people who now are gathering all of the, the offering. Moses was gathering it and bringing it to them and saying, okay, you need what? You need this? Here's, here's some of that material that you need. You need this? Okay, I've got some of that. Here it is. And so he was giving it to them. So now they come to Moses. Now keep in mind, what they are giving, and this is an important principle, what they are giving, God gave to them originally. You see, this is an important thing for us to remember that all that we have, we talked about this last week, 
is ours because God gave it to us to begin with. Is It's ownership versus stewardship. I won't rehash that because I know that was a difficult lesson last week. So, uh, but anyway, verse 3. Uh, let me read it again. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. Free will. They just kept coming and just offering willingly and freely just like the people of Macedonia were doing. Verse 4. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary where he came, each one from the work that he was doing. And they spoke to Moses. Now listen to what they said. This is great. Saying, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. You ever heard that in the modern day church? <laughs> Somebody gets up and says, oh, it's offering time. And the people respond like we do. Oh, all right, all right. Oh, we got too much, so we're not taking an offering today. <laughs> that's what they said they said we got too much and they bring too much for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do verse 6 so Moses gave a commandment this is a commandment now and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp saying let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary for the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done indeed too much. Wow. I mean, that's just incredible to think that that kind of thing can happen. But this is what happens when people have a spirit of generosity. Amen? I'm the only one amen in this. I guess, where are my elders at? All you elders, come on. <laughs> have some amening going on out here. Yeah, see, that's right. That's Bible. Preach it. All that stuff should be shouted out. So how do you develop this? Well, there's a key here, and I want you to see it. It's a key. The, the whole key is found in verse number 5. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So let's establish something here. If you've never surrendered yourself to the Lord, you're going to have a lot of trouble surrendering your stuff to the Lord. Amen? Amen? Hey, if I belong to the Lord, then all that I have belongs to the Lord. But if I'm still questioning whether I actually belong to the Lord, then I can still hang on to all the stuff that I have. So the question is, have you ever given yourself to the Lord? Now this will separate people who attend church very quickly throughout the United States of America. Because what we're talking about is a commitment to the Lord in your life. We're not talking about convenient discipleship any longer. You see, convenient discipleship is the way all of the disciples started out with Jesus. When Jesus came along, he said, come and follow me. And so they started following him. But they only followed him periodically. For about 18 months, it was convenient discipleship. They accompanied him to the wedding. They watched him do his miracles. They went back to their fishing. But about 18 months of watching Jesus do all the stuff that Jesus could do, their faith grew and they started realizing, wait a minute, 
He can take care of us. And trust began to be enacted. The faith was acted on and trust took place. You know, there is a difference. Faith is coming into the auditorium and looking at a chair and saying, I believe that chair can hold me. But when you sit down in it, you trust it. So faith is saying, I believe God is able, but trust occurs when you actually step out and do something about it. And you become dependent on him. Then the disciples began at that point in their lives, about 18 months into it, Jesus said, come and follow me. And then we read the text and they forsook their nets and followed Jesus. But for about 18 months, they were convenient disciples. So let me ask you a question. I ask it with love in my heart and intended that way. When are some of us going to switch from being convenient to committed? We cannot accomplish the work of God with convenient Christians. It's only going to be accomplished through committed Christians. There will always be convenient Christians because we are reaching new people. And as they grow in their faith, they're going to be convenient Christians. But somewhere, ladies and gentlemen, we have to move away from the convenience into the committed. Somewhere we have to grow. Where, what happens? When does that take place? When we first give ourselves to the Lord, then we commit. And all of us know that all that we have then is his. Then they gave themselves to the missionaries. Let me move on to point number two. And all God's people said, amen. <laughs> Actually, I do want to share one more thing with you. It's a, it's, a, it's a quick story, but it leads us into the second point. So let me give you the story. I've actually, I think I've told this story before here. It's a true story about a man in Australia that was a member of our church. He, uh, he was greatly blessed to the Lord in his business. He was a, a sod farmer. And uh, he had a, a, a farm that he bought, 30 some odd acres if memory serves me correctly. And it was right on a river that flowed by his property. To water his, his uh, sod, he would simply drop a pump over into the river and he would water it. Australia went through a horrible drought about the time that we first went over there back in 1989, a long time ago. So, uh, went through a horrible drought and everybody's sod was burning up except his because he had the river attached to his property. So he could water his naturally uh, through supply and demand he was able to charge a little bit more because he was the only place they could go and get sod. And he became a very wealthy young man. He bought a jaguar, which he pronounced jaguar. Bought a jaguar. And he would go to a poverty-stricken area in the region that we, we ministered in. And he would pick up kids. It was a bus route. This was before the seatbelt laws. And so... Literally, I'm telling you the truth. It looked like a cartoon. He would pull up in his Jaguar and kids were hanging out the windows. They got to ride in a Jag on the way to church, man. 
And it's a poverty-stricken apartment complex he would pick up all these kids in. And one day I was out in front of the church when he drove up and he parked. And these kids hanging out the window, man, I'm, I, literally. And they all get out. And it's like one of those cartoons you see. I mean, I don't know how many kids. 20-something kids. No, not that many. But they just piling out of this Jaguar. And, and they make their way up to the church. And so, so this brother comes up and I said to him, I said, man, I said, that's tremendous. I said, aren't you a little bit concerned? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, what are they doing to the interior of your car? I said, aren't they, aren't they destroying the interior of your car? And he pointed to his car. He said, you mean that? I said, yeah. He said, oh, that's not mine. He said, that belongs to the Lord. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. It taught this at that time, young preacher, a very important lesson. It's either ours or it's his. Are you following me? The churches of Macedonia set that example. Number two on the list, we find inspiration. Inspiration. Let me show you verses six and seven to begin with. Look there. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything... In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Now, we have the application. What was Paul doing? Paul was speaking of churches in Macedonia. You may not know this, but there was a great rivalry between the north and the south. There was a great rivalry between the barbarous people who lived in Macedonia and the more cultured Greeks who lived in Corinth. And Corinth now is getting this information and this is what they're thinking. If those people can give like that, then I should be able to give like that. And there was a bit of a healthy spiritual competition that began. Regardless of what you think about this, you cannot ignore the fact that Paul deals with this throughout his writings. Paul was constantly getting us motivated by hearing about others who were inspiring in what they did. If they can do it, why can't we do it? And so I'll challenge you with a couple of churches that I'm aware of that I can share with you personally. One of them is in the mountains of North Carolina. It's a small area, one of the poorest counties in the nation. Their church runs about 80. My wife and I have been there. We were part of their missions conference many years ago. The church runs about 80. They have on their walls letters, prayer letters from missionaries that they currently support. 80 missionaries. I said to the pastor when I was standing there, I said, are you serious? You support all of these? He said, we do. They have as many missionaries as they have members. And they support them all at a hefty rate. I mean, for a church that size, some $50 or more per missionary. So it's not like they gave each one a dollar. How do they do that? Faith. They're a giving church. 
I can tell you about a church I just went to recently and preached for in a missions conference. I was invited to come as the keynote speaker for the missions conference. And when they took their pledges at the end of the conference, that particular church, which by the way, runs less than we do, almost 100 people less than we do, and their demographics are different than ours. Uh, they, they have a lot of just blue-collar, hard-working people, but people who exercise faith. When those commitment cards came in, they had pledged for the year over $250,000 to missions alone. That's about four times what we give, ladies and gentlemen. It's not the amount. It's the amount of sacrifice. It's a matter of Paul said, let me tell you about the churches of Macedonia. So let me tell you about some other churches and what they're doing. Let me tell you about some other believers and what they're, what they're accomplishing. And then ask ourselves, are we growing in this faith also? That's what Paul had to say. He said, I'm, I've urged Titus to come that he would complete this in you. you. You have so many things you do well is what he's saying. In verse 7, you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in diligence, in love for us. You're an incredible church, he was saying to the people of Corinth. And I say to you at East Point, you are an amazing, awesome, incredible church. But is there an area of our ministry that we need to shore up? Is there an area when it comes to this thing of grace giving that we need to stop and look at and say you know something we don't need to ignore this we need to reach the world with the gospel imagine what we can do I'll give you just a brief testimony I didn't plan to do this and I hesitate to take up your time during this when we left Australia my heart broke we were returning to the United States and felt like a vision had died. We had a lot of plans of reaching the area and planting a hundred churches there in the region around Sydney. And one of the things God spoke to my heart about was without churches here in the United States that are strong mission-minded churches, the missionaries cannot do their job. We cannot send them if we don't have the finances to send them. So God began to refocus me on instead of being the missionary on the field that we have to be the sending church. We have to be the church that helps them get there. Some of our missionaries are taking three and four years to raise enough support. Because there are fewer and fewer churches like the Macedonian churches who say, you know what? We need to prioritize this in our lives. We need to do something about this. So we have the inspiration. How many of you are familiar with the story of Jim Elliott? Anybody here familiar with that? Back in 2006, some of you may have seen the movie that was made about his life. It was called The End of the Spear. Before that, I think there was a play that was developed uh, beyond the gates of splendor and books that were written. Jim Elliott uh, was a missionary to Ecuador. Uh, he lived from uh, October the 8th, 1927 to January the 8th, 1956. As a young man, he was killed 
along with several other missionaries. We have some slides here we want to show you. He was on a uh, operation called the Aka Operation or the Operation of the Aqua Indians in Ecuador. Uh, there was a specific tribe they were going to meet and try to reach. It was an unreached people group and they were known for the fact that they killed everybody that came into their region didn't matter who you were and so what they did was for some time before they ever landed their plane on a little shore area they would drop off packages of gifts to the people trying to warm them up and then they landed the plane they made contact they even gave one man a ride from the tribe one of the tribal leaders they gave him a ride in the plane the story is told that that particular man, the tribal leader, went back to his people and actually told a lie about why they were there. So they rallied the men together and they came and they speared, they killed five missionaries. Jim Elliott along with Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and their pilot Nate Saint. They were all slain by these Indians they had gone to reach. It was a horrible story. Later, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, would go back to the field along with the son of Nate Saint. And they would win the majority of them to Christ. They were amazed and taken by the forgiveness that was offered by these family members who they had killed previously. And they would show the love of Christ to them. In his journal, Jim Elliott was noted as having made this entry. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me read that again. It's important. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying that the churches of Macedonia, I'm saying missionaries like Jim Elliott, I'm saying like some of the churches, even in our own nation, who are sacrificing, they ought to inspire us to stop and realize we need to have a part in the same ministry. In carrying the gospel around the world. A greater part than what we already have. As Paul was writing to this church in verse 8, pick up there with me please, verse 8. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Now, you understand what he's saying, don't you? I mean, it's pretty plain when you read that. He said, I'm testing the sincerity of your love. How much do you love the world? Do you love it like Christ loves it? Is your goal the same as his? Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Are we involved ourselves in missions? I'm not talking about what the church does. I'm talking about what we're doing individually because the church will do what only our individuals will do. The church is made up of the individuals. Amen? So he said, I, I want to test the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. That is, what they're doing, how does it compare to what we're doing? And then he goes on and he uses this illustration. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. 
Now I know what some of you are thinking. That's not fair. You pulled the Jesus card, man. That's uh, uh, how do you how do you debate that? How do you how do you possibly compare to anything Jesus did for you? How how have you thought about the sacrifice that Jesus made? The fact that he was enfleshed. The fact that he left all of that back there to come to earth for us. The fact that he left his glory that he had had before the foundation of the world that he prays for to return to him in John chapter 17. The fact that Jesus came and he lived on this old earth for 33 and a half years. He went through all that he went through. Died the crucifixion, died at the crucifixion for, for us to have a way into heaven. He made a way for us to have eternal life, the forgiveness of our sin. He shed his blood for us and though he was rich, he became poor for our sake, the Bible says. When you think about what Jesus did for us, I encourage you to think about what you are doing for him. And that's what Paul is saying. So we have the information that is shared. We have the inspiration that is shared. And then last of all, picking up in verse 10, we find the invitation. The invitation, verse 10. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that they may be equality. Paul is not saying there needs to be equal giving. Quite honestly, some of the people in this building right now can give much, much more than other people in this building. I read a story this past week I thought was kind of interesting. I enjoy the writings of uh, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, some of you, I know we have some Spurgeonites, uh, uh, Spurgeonites, I don't know if you call them that, people who like to read some of Spurgeon's material. It's a little thick sometimes, kind of hard to read uh, for some people, but I've always enjoyed his writings. And I, I read a story where a wealthy man out in a rural area wrote to him and said, uh, um, Spurgeon, we'd like for you to come. Mr. Spurgeon, we'd like for you to come. We'd like for you to speak at our little rural church. And we would like for you to lead us in a fundraising campaign to pay off our church debt. We've acquired a little bit of debt. And he said in his letter, while you are here, please feel free to stay at my country home or my town home or my seaside cottage. Spurgeon is said to have written back and said, sell one of your houses and pay the debt yourself. You see, the fact of the matter is that some of us could probably do much more than others of us could do. So the question is not equal giving. Hear me. It's equal sacrifice. It's equal sacrifice. What the widow gave in that illustration we used earlier was nothing in compared to the amount that others gave, but the sacrifice was much greater. Much greater. 
inevitably in a church our size there are always people who say you know what I remember last year we talked about this and I was thinking about it and you know what Paul just said we just read it a minute ago he said some of you you've been talking about it for a while it began in your heart some time ago but you just haven't yet found out how to do it yet so now it's time we quit putting it off now it's time we quit talking about it now it's time we do it that's what he said any of you guys watching the Olympics this year some of you can anybody explain curling to me <laughs> when it's all over please let me know I don't understand that sport it's kind of cool to watch but I don't I don't know how it works I don't know what the scoring system is you grow up in Florida I guess you don't think about well anyway I'm, I'm baffled I, uh, I put it right up there with a fax machine I don't understand it and I, I just leave it leave it alone but uh, there seems to be a theme that runs throughout the the Olympics this year which I find kind of interesting and very applicable to our our missions conference not do what you can but the theme is do what you can't have you noticed that on the commercials and all the stuff there? do what you can't do what you can't. Now I understand it in the way of driving the athlete to new places, new heights, new records, new accomplishments. But think about it in terms of a church for just a minute. How do you do what you can't? Through faith in God. That's how. Some people last year got involved in missions for the first time. So let me ask you a question. Have you really missed it? Have you missed what you've been giving? Would it be the sacrifice now for you to continue that that it was back then? If it isn't, then up your sacrifice. Did it cause you to move your belt to the next notch last year and now all of a sudden it's made its way back out and everything's good and where's our faith as a church? Did you know that if we were the only New Testament church in the entire world, and I know we're not, but if we were, we would still have the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel? Did you know that when Jesus gave them that, there was only one church? It was right there in Jerusalem. He said, go. So I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, it's our responsibility to go. On that little prayer card, that, you gave, that I gave you earlier take a look at it I'm only going to approach the first three things on it faithfully support our church in prayer very important to support East Point by tithing regularly the light that shines farthest shines brightest at home we dealt last week with the idea that we can't take what belongs to the local church and give it to missions because the church would cease to exist we said that was like paying your light bill and failing to pay your mortgage payment eventually you'll not have any lights so you can't do that. And then to give a faith promise missions per week or by the month. Maybe some even annually. That's our involvement. I'm not asking you to fill out anything. I'm asking you to pray. I'm asking you to pray, God, what do you want to do through me? That's what I'm asking you to do. And I'm asking you to get involved and have a part. I'm inviting you. Just like Paul invited the church of Corinth to get in on what God is blessing you know we often ask God to bless what we're doing when in fact we ought to ask him to help us do what he's blessing let's pray 
Father, we come to you today and we love you. We thank you for your word. And God, I know that we've said a lot of things this morning out of this text, God. You've shown us so much. And what it really boils down to, God, is what will we do with the information? Have we been moved to inspiration? And will we accept the invitation to get involved and have a part in reaching the world with the gospel of Christ. I pray God help us as we search our hearts and we look to you for guidance. What would you have us do for this year? What would you have us do from March to March? What would you have us do? What would you want to do through us? In Jesus' name. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, the invitation is open. If you're here today and you'd like to find out more about how you can be born again and what Jesus did for you, we'd love to take the Bible and show you. It'll only take a moment of your time. It'll make all the difference for all of eternity. And we'd love to show you. If you'll make your way forward and let us know, Pastor, I, I want to know about how to be born again. Or maybe you're here today and you're already saved and, and, and you're a, a part of this great church. And you're seeking the Lord's will and direction for you and your family. God, what do you want to do through me? Maybe that's your prayer. Would you come and pray today? Or would you pray where you are? Whatever God lays on your heart to do, will you ask him what he wants to do? May God bless you. Would you stand with me, please? The invitation's open.